Thank you, Ethan. Well, I thank Ethan for inviting me. I thank you guys for coming. And uh, he asked me to talk about prayer this evening. And that's something that you all are familiar with, I'm sure. This isn't the first time you've heard the word. And, um, and so I had to think, you know, what, what kind of thing might be of some kind of interest. And I recall, and I think back, that uh, I'm old enough to remember the Second Vatican Council. And uh, I remember in the seminary in those days when the whole new wave was coming along. And one of the priests was telling us, you know, that we had to get rid of the Jesus and me-ism. And that was, that, was the, that was an awful thing to talk about, you know, that if anybody was Jesus and me, then that was old, get rid of all that. And I thought about that when I was getting ready for this, because in a sense, this is about Jesus and us as persons. But I think that there's a difference. When you take, um, for instance, some of the old Protestant hymns about what a friend we have in Jesus and all that, there's a process where we project ourselves onto who Jesus is. And when we do that, we kind of violate the primacy of the relationship, the proportion of the relationship. Because the whole thing really for us, and this is what prayer is about, is not that we project ourselves onto him and then begin to decide who he is, but that we become open to him projecting himself into us in order that we become transformed in our relationship with him. And I realize too in this that this is exactly how human love works as well. When you first, you know, you can become a fan of somebody. We have all sorts of people who are fans of all sorts of celebrities. And since you don't know them, people make up in their minds who they are. And so basically what they're doing is finding a way to give themselves a new persona where they can really feel good about themselves. That's what being a fan is all about. But when you love somebody, that's not what it's like. When you love somebody, then you are open to who they really are. And you are open to them in their care for you, beginning to bring some kind of fulfillment, some kind of transformation in our lives. Because love changes us. The biggest liar in the world would be someone who had been married for 50 years and said, you know, I haven't changed one bit in those 50 years. I'm exactly the same person I was when I got married. That's not possible unless you live in total isolation from the other person. Because we change each other in our friendships, in our inter interpersonal lives. We change each other. And love changes us. When other people love us, we are changed by that. There, there's a transformation on the inside because there's a, there's a greater wholeness, there's a greater kind of completeness inside of ourselves. So that when we turn to the whole idea of prayer, instead of calling it prayer for the time being, it might just be a good idea to say, 
that we are undertaking an experience of friendship with someone who is other than we are. And so we have to be open to who the other person is. In contemporary theology, this is problematic because we have a, we have a, a whole school going on at the University of Louvain called the recontextualization of theology by a man named Bouve. And basically what happens is they reduce the whole idea of Jesus to kind of a consciousness of sorts. I mean, this started a long time ago. But that somehow or other, when we talk about the spirit in this context, we're really talking about the spirit of God that we perceive in our consciousness and so the God that we come to know is the God that we process in our minds. Well, what a friend we have in Jesus. Because what this does, it constricts the Lord to the parameters of our own finite being, to the parameters of our own imagination, our own mind, our own understanding, our own experience. And that's not revelation. In Revelation, we have to move outside of ourselves toward another. If you have a friend and you say, the essence of our friendship is that you do everything I want and you be the person I want you to be, you would not be friends for very long, probably, <laughs> unless there was something radically wrong with you. So why should we say in an interpersonal relationship with the other who is God, why should we say that somehow or other we have a right to do that with the incarnate word when we know it's foolish in our human circumstances because that's not the way we work as human beings. We're unique characters and we are, and there's also, and I don't know, you know what all of you take in, in college or anything like that. I know one of you is a computer engineer. Aside from that, I'm, I have no idea. But uh, if any of you get into the, uh, I don't know, into the philosophy or any of that, there's a thing called postmodernism. And the postmoderns are the ones who basically, beyond modernity, have decided that there's another stage of experience in being past modernity. And in that, there's kind of a separation. And that was interesting, what Ethan said when he was talking. There's a separation in the German they call the difference between the corpor and the Leib. When you were talking about Zoe, you were talking about kind of real life, the life of the spirit. And then kind of the physical life, the trees and so forth. Well, they do that to the human person. And so they say, well, really, it is the life force within us which allows us to reconstruct our physical person. That's where a lot of this um, surger, surgical change of people and so forth comes from this thought, this idea. But the issue is, even they, 
get to say. Nevertheless, the person is never complete, no matter how much they reconfigure their plastic selves. The person is never the same, are never complete, until they are in a relationship with another. Because it is the relationality within the human person that completes the Zoe part of the human life. That insight is incredibly important because that insight is from all of the modern fooling around with the human person. It is the insight that after a century of struggle with it, they finally have come down to a basic fact that to be whole, to be complete, we have to be in relationship with another, and for us also, the other. Which means that the Jesus who we speak to cannot be ourselves. And then that means we have to come to know the person. We can't have a friendship with a person when we don't know who they are, unless you construct a false other. And in that false other, of course, eventually destroy any relationship you might have. So the first thing when we talk about a relationship between ourselves and the other, who Revelation tells us is Jesus the Christ, the incarnate word of God, in order to do that, we have to know who he is. We cannot construct him. He, in fact, must present himself and be allowed to present himself to us as someone other than ourselves. The whole idea of being created in the image and likeness of God means that we participate in the divine being. And the great mystics of the 14th century were talking about the indwelling in the Trinity. And all that's true. Teresa of Avila talks about it, too. Her interior castle is a soul. But on the other hand, the relationship for the Lord to enter into us in a way that is liberating and activating, we have to be in some kind of relationship with him. And the first thing you have to do in relationship is know who the other person is. How do we find who the other person is? We find that the other person is someone whom God reveals to us, gives to us. Again, I don't know how much you're interested in modern philosophy or any of that kind of thing in your life, but there was a very significant German philosopher of the last century, Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger proposed a very interesting proposition, which is probably true. He says being, which is what we call God as being itself, being every time we try to impose a rational concept on being, being conceals himself from us. He becomes, he cannot be being if he is circumscribed by human reason. And Heidegger says that goes all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And the modern theologian who kind of 
took that as an insight was Joseph Ratzinger. And Ratzinger said, if we cannot know being, the only thing we can know about being, about God, is what God tells us about himself. What he tells us about himself is the logos, the word. The word that God speaks at the beginning of creation. So that the logos, who John tells us, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the logos, who is Jesus, is all we can possibly know about God. And we can know about God through him because not just using our narrow minds, but engaging in a relationship with another person opens up the truth of that other person to us. And the truth of the incarnate word of the logos of Jesus is divinity itself is God. So that this idea that we are created to go outside of ourselves to encounter the other helps us to understand the other whom we encounter is God. And so prayer is engaging in the conversation and the relationship between ourselves and Jesus Christ, which opens us up to divine wisdom, divine knowledge, divine presence, insofar as God desires us to have that. And it seems to me that the way that we get to know this logos, this person, is knowing about him, which is what the Gospels are all about. They began the strange story of who this person is, who this man is, who is the fullness of the revelation of God of being himself. And the genius of the Gospels is this. They don't give us a hypothetical study of the nature of the divine. They tell us perennial stories which every age is challenged to unravel with their own imagination and their own life experience and their own time and their own place. We see that, for instance, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the story of the virgin birth. What image comes to our mind in the story of the virgin birth. In some ways, the Christmas crib. And so we have an enduring icon, an image of a story. And then we are drawn in to who, what that story really is all about. Every age reinterprets the Bethlehem scene in its own way. Everyone has an experience of maternity in the world. Everyone has an experience of the birth of a child. 
everyone has an experience of the struggle of parents to take care of those children. Everybody knows this is a perennial experience of humanity constructed in the revelation of the Gospels to help us always remember that the one who has come to us is humble, shares life experience with us, like us in all things but sin, it says. All of this, and then we can follow his life. From his birth, then the narratives continue. And then he had these friends, and then he said this, and then he did that. Then he revealed himself as God through the miracles to his disciples. And then all of the complexities that go on in the life of Jesus up into his passion, death, and resurrection. So we have a life story of the one who is other to us, which we have access to in the Gospels. So reading in the Gospels, we're able then to find the person who is the key to the truth of God and yet at the same time has a personal relationship with us. So that we get drawn into the divine mystery in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We get drawn into the mystery of life and of death of resurrection, of friendship, of sorrow, of tragedy, of joy, of triumph, all of those things. The whole, the whole scene of the human experience. Along with the Gospels in coming to know all of this, along with the Gospels, we can find those who have been very, very public, very special friends of the Lord. And we can turn to them and say, what can they tell us about this person? And so part of our prayer life, the preparation for our prayer life, is to come to know Jesus, therefore through the Gospels primarily. But then others have spoken about him, others who have experienced him, others even who have seen him can tell us about who he was to them what he meant to them, what he did for them. And so it's like knowing the friends of your friends. It expands your understanding of who your friend is. You see them in a context. It's like a young couple decides to get married and they're going to meet the parents for the first time, the family for the first time. There's usually a revelation involved with that, you know? Because all of a sudden you see them in a way you never saw them before. You've always seen them as your companion, your friend, the one you're in love with, the one you want to marry. You never saw them actually as a child before, which is what you become when you go home when you're grown up. It's the way it works. That's why going home to live when you're older is usually very difficult because you're sick and tired of being a child, but your parents will never see you any other way. And, uh, and treat you accordingly. So you see this dimension of the other person. You see them in a context. Well, that's what people who know about the Lord, who have seen the Lord, who have spoken with the Lord, they can tell us about those experiences. And his context then gets bigger for us. It gets wider, more expansive, more expressive. 
And I think, you know, I think that things like the saints, the lives of the saints, or the, or the books written by the saints, St. Therese of Lisieux's books, John of the Cross's books, the autobiography of Therese of Lisieux, the uh, autobiography of Ignatius, all those kinds of things. People who, who have written their story, their experience, or stories about them by people who knew them and are telling their stories for them. That's a great aid and a great assistance in finding out who the Lord is. Because the more you know of him, the deeper your relationship is able to be. Because the bigger character he is, the bigger person he is in your life, the more multidimensional, the more complete, the more whole, the more in conformity with the God who he comes from and who he is. And so I think we can look at things like this. And we began to ask ourselves then, what can I do to move more deeply into the friendship that I have discovered as I seek a relationship with the one who is other, the one who is not me, but the one who reveals me to myself through his love for me. For that's what being loved does. It reveals us to ourselves. I was talking with a young man the other day, and he had a very negative view of himself, which was a shame. Was, um, there was no reason for it. But it really, it really is because he doesn't know himself all that well. Because he has not experienced that kind of total acceptance by another who sees only the good and is able, therefore, to enliven the good inside of him. Eventually, they'll encounter the problems. But initially, initially, that's part of what's fascinating about falling in love, is that you can feel good about yourself, too, and not just the other person. You become lovable, which is a terrible revelation to many. You know? Well, I never thought that was possible. They mustn't know me the way I know me. But, but it, it isn't, that isn't what happens in love because they do know you. And they do love you anyway. And that tells you a lot about yourself. And so is it too when the Jesus who you have come to know loves you and you are aware and conscious of that then you know more about yourself, too, exactly as you do in any deep friendship, in any marriage, in any close situation with other people. And that while you know you may walk into an area and be a total stranger and feel very at e un at ease and, and, and very self-conscious, all of a sudden someone smiles and says something nice to you, and some of that starts to go away. And then eventually, as the relationships build, you gain more confidence, more sense of yourself, more sense of your place. That's what friendship with Jesus does. That's what the prayer life does. It situates us. It gives us security, in a sense. And it gives us confidence in who we are, who God has created. Sometimes, in a relationship, you really do kind of run out of something to say. 
So you talk about prayer. Well, I don't have anything to say in prayer. I'm not, I'm just not into it today. I'm not thinking about it. But you know, think of it. If you were married and you came down in the morning and you were in a rotten mood and you didn't want anybody around and there was your husband or your wife in the kitchen, the real thing you could do is say good morning and then leave, you know? You acknowledge their presence. That's what we do when we don't feel like praying. We acknowledge his presence in our lives. And one of the ways we can pay our due debt to the one who cares for us is to speak to him anyway, even when we have nothing to say. And we in the church have a privilege to do that by speaking in the words of somebody else. The saints had great conversations with the Lord. Why don't we speak to him through their conversations? Why don't we speak to him in St. Ignatius's sushi pay? Or why don't we speak to him in Charles de Foucault's prayer of abandonment? Or why don't we speak to him in Thomas's prayers, Bonaventure's prayers, any of the ones who have given us prayers in a prayer book? Why don't we speak to the divine presence in our lives through a repetition of prayers, through the rosary, or part of it? That there's never a time when you say, well, gee, I have nothing to say to the Lord today. It's been a bad day, and I'm not very conversant today. And, but for five minutes or 10 minutes, you can say, you can speak to him in the words that somebody else gives you. Recited prayer is very valuable. When we go to prayer and we, we're empty, we have nothing to say, speak through the saints. Speak through the church. Speak through somebody else. You're communicating with the one who loves you. Maybe you feel it's inadequate, but it's better than the silent treatment at any rate. And so, and then if you try to reflect and you try to meditate and all of that, and you get just totally distracted. We live in the most distracting times that I have experienced. There is constant noise everywhere. You pump gas and they're blaring music at you, you know? I was in a CVS one time and I thought, it, was, it wasn't so bad, I thought. And then I realized it was silent. And the clerk came up and apologized because their music system was down or something. <laughs> You know? So we're filled with distractions. And St. Teresa of Avila says, if you're trying to pray and you're distracted, then pick something up and read it and change the focus of your mind. And maybe that will help you get away with it. Maybe that will help you get rid of the clutter in your day, in your life. Maybe that will take place. So we listen to those who have been successful in this endeavor And in so doing, we learn to pray in many different ways. In our hearts, with our words, through reading, through getting to know the Lord, 
all of the, and I, as I said, all of the rules of engagement of friendship are the rules of engagement of prayer. Insofar <clears throat> as we have to contribute to the relationship, we do so as we would contribute to the relationship with a friend. We know how to do that. That's part of our life skill. And we employ that life skill in our relationship with the Lord. And finally, I think, I, I like to think that our own human experience is Theology 101. It's what gives us the, cons the, the understanding of the concepts we use when we approach the divine. If you have never been loved in your life, even by your parents, your grandparents, your neighbors, your teachers, and you hear the word, God loves you, it will mean nothing to you because you have no concept of what that is. But those people are few and far between. All of us have experienced it somehow. That's our understanding of the concept so that when we use the word, we have some sense of understanding. And it's the same way in all of the other theological, spiritual language that we use. We are dependent on our human experience to give meaning to the language that we hear and that we speak and that we receive from others. And that is something that is important for us to realize and understand that all of your human experiences are part of the process of the language you use when you speak to the Lord. You don't have to have a highly technical language. You use the language of your heart, the language of your experience, the language of your life. And the conversation will be profound at times, casual at times, shallow at times. But the conversation must go on because you cannot be close to someone you never speak to. And so it has to be a constant part of all of our lives. Okay? Do you have any questions or outrages or anything like that? Everybody has outrages. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.